welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. I was in Chicago last week and a portion of the time I spent up in Wisconsin as well, but I was in Chicago last week and I was helping to facilitate a conference for people who had recently started new churches. It's something that our denomination decided to do. I think there were around 40 pastors, and in some cases, their spouses were there. One story in particular got my attention. This couple had gone out to start a church, and it began in January of 2020. Do the math. That's two months before we entered this wonderful thing called COVID. So I uh, went to this conference. I had a part in facilitating some of the discussions, but I made the rather unwise decision to fly on Southwest Airlines to try and get there. And that meant, in a word, delays. I won't bore you with the drama surrounding my flight out to Chicago, but my return flight was scheduled to leave and come back at 3.15 in the afternoon this past Tuesday until it was delayed. I finally made it to Las Vegas, where my connection was supposed to leave Las Vegas for Sacramento at 7 p.m. until it was delayed. The airport in Las Vegas was packed, wall-to-wall with people. I was tired. I wanted to get home. I didn't know how long the delay was going to last. I did know that our plane had not yet arrived, so you know how that is. You're waiting. You're waiting. It's still not here. It's still not here. And to top it all off, while I was in the Las Vegas airport, I made the wrong decision to buy a turkey sandwich and some cheese sticks with salami wrapped around them and a bottle of water. And it cost me $30 for those things. My part in the Chicago conference was to lead the group to think about their spiritual formation in Christ-likeness. How they were becoming like him. When I saw the $30 tab for this below-average sandwich on top of these various flight delays, let's just say my spiritual deformation began to make itself known. Delays. Waiting. Wondering how much longer, waiting some more. All this has a way of revealing who we are and what we care about. Well, our last parable in this Imaginary Gardens with Real Toads series is about waiting for Jesus to come a second time and make all things right and make all things good. In this parable, Jesus is urging his disciples to be prepared for his coming. And that's an important point. This teaching is directed at his disciples. He's not talking to the mass crowds. He is with his disciples, and he's teaching them about his second coming. He's urging them and us to live as those who actually believe our king is coming again. In the time of Jesus, a wedding was actually probably a bigger deal than it is today, though probably not quite as expensive. Weddings could actually be a seven-day-long, they typically were, a seven-day-long celebration. They were important occasions in the life of the families involved. They were also important occasions in the life of the community where the marriage was occurring. We're talking about 12- to 16-year-old young women who have been engaged for some amount of time, and in some cases they've been engaged for a very long time. And finally, the day of the wedding and the banquet and the festivities and celebration arrives, and it all begins at night when the groom 
along with his friends and family, start walking from the groom's house, maybe his parents' house, maybe not, but he starts walking from the groom's house to the bride's house, where she probably lives with her parents, and when he gets there, he will receive the bride, and then together, the bride and the groom and their friends and their family and the bridesmaids and whomever else will form a great big processional, and they will walk to where the wedding and the banquet and the celebration is to begin. But as we know, weddings never start on time. People aren't ready. The hair's not cooperating on wedding day. There's last-minute changes that are getting made, whatever the reason. They rarely start on time. And in the parable, the groom's arrival at the bride's house is delayed. So get the picture. There are 10, the NIV calls it virgins. Other translations call them bridesmaids who are waiting outside near the bride's house, waiting for the groom to arrive so this wedding banquet and feast can begin. And again, weddings happened at night. That was the kickoff to this long celebration. So because they arrived at night, if there were delays, the groom could arrive late at night. And in the parable, we're told the groom arrives at midnight. The bridesmaids, in addition to whatever else they were doing, they were in charge of bringing the torches to light the processional on the way to the festivities. There's not street lights or flashlights, so somehow they have to know where they're going, and they brought the torches, the lamps, to light the way to the festivities. Five wise bridesmaids, as they're referred to, bring extra oil to keep the torches or lamps lit while they wait. They plan for there to be a delay, so they prepare for it. Five foolish bridesmaids do not bring extra oil. They don't prepare. And the groom is delayed in his coming. And it gets late. And then later and later, and eventually all ten bridesmaids fall asleep. Sometimes people jump off on the fact that they fell asleep and that's somehow a bad thing. That's got nothing to do with the point of the parable. Suddenly the groom shows up and the bridesmaids wake up. And they start to get their lamps and their torches ready. They trim them in preparation for the processional. They put the extra oil in them so they're lit while they make this walk together. But the foolish ones don't have any extra oil. Their torches are out. And after they unsuccessfully try to get their friends, the other bridesmaids, to give them some, they are told, go run to find a merchant who will sell this to you. Where you find a store open at midnight back then, I have no idea, but off they go. But by the time they catch up to the processional, the banquet and the wedding and the festivities have already begun, and the door is shut. And in a sobering ending to this parable, Matthew says, later the other bridesmaids came and said, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But Jesus replied, I don't know you. And then he said, therefore, keep watch because you don't know the day or the hour. And the point is abundantly clear, sobering, hard, but abundantly clear. Jesus is the delayed groom. His disciples are the bridesmaids. And they're now in a long season of waiting for him to return. And until he comes, his followers, this is the last verse of the parable, are to keep watch. We are to be ready for his return. We are to live in the light of his eventual return because he can return at any moment. 
You know, it took Jesus a while, but eventually he was able to kind of, sort of, convince his disciples that he was going to suffer and die and rise again. And then one day out in the future, he would return and he would make all things right. And the disciples, being the humans they were, wanted to know the particulars. They wanted the details. When and how would these things transpire? So they asked Jesus at the beginning of Matthew 24, when will all this happen? What will be the sign that you are coming back and this age we are living in is coming to an end? And Matthew chapter 24 and 25 records Jesus's response to his disciples' question. And he explains the signs of his second coming, the return of the king. He talks about the chaos that will be unleashed in the world, the suffering that will be commonplace in the world. He talks about what we might call the apparent reign of evil over the world. And he keeps telling his followers, his disciples, be ready, keep watch, because you don't know when Jesus is going to return, but you do know that Jesus is going to return. So we decided to end this series on the parables with one that talks about the return of Jesus because we don't talk about this as often as maybe we should around here. And with all the pressures and stresses of the past several years, the chaos in our world, the growing division in our nation, the way sometimes it seems like evil is reigning, seems like a really good idea to take a few minutes today and remind each other that Jesus is going to return someday. And when he does return, he will come as judge. Those who belong to him will be with him forever. Those who don't belong to him will be separated from him forever. He will come as healer as well. He'll make all things right and good and new. And his peace, his shalom, will finally permeate every square inch of this universe. And the details of how this all plays out, the when and the how, is way beyond my pay grade. So I'm not going to touch that. But this, this much is clear. How you and I live today, amid the noise and chaos and pain and pressure, is different and can be different because our king is going to return someday. And when he returns, his will will be done on earth as it is done right now in heaven. And all will finally be well. So a few observations about the second coming from this parable. Let's talk first about remembering his return without being consumed by it. There are Christians, maybe you're one of them, maybe I'm one of them, who rarely consider the second coming of Christ. It's an idea that lives somewhere in our mind, but it seems so far out there. <clears throat> Not out there as in time-wise. It just seems so far removed from everyday life challenges. It is essentially irrelevant to us. We might call it a nice thing. We might have sort of a, oh yeah, that's going to happen at some point. But life is sitting right in front of us with all of its challenges. And so there's kind of this, all right, I, I'm not sure what that all means, but okay. And we all face this temptation 
We get immersed in the grind of life. We get enamored with the pleasures of life. We get consumed by the demands of life. And we do not remember the ultimate future God has already promised for those who are his followers. That sort of ultimate future kind of dissolves in the various pursuits of life. And when we lose sight of the second coming, it seems to me we try to make heaven on earth. As though our experience here is the most important thing. Or in the rhythm of the beginning of Colossians chapter 3, we set our hearts and our minds on earthly things and on earthly solutions. We forget without even realizing we have forgotten. We forget that we are made for another world and God is gradually bringing that new world into being and one day his work of bringing that new world into being will be finished. Over on the other side of the spectrum, and you may know people like this, I certainly do, there are Christians who are so consumed with the second coming, their time on earth is all about heaven. Meaning, life in the details doesn't really matter to them. The problems of the world are not faced with any authenticity or any sense of what can we do about that. Kingdom work does not really matter because these folks want out, they might put it. They're kind of biding their time. Like sitting in a waiting room just waiting to be called up into eternity. They want out. So things like injustice, suffering, unrighteousness, these earthy realities get ignored, kind of brushed aside. And just to make the statement, this is not anywhere close to being ready or to keeping watch as Jesus instructs in this parable. So in the first scenario, we lose eternity in our pursuit of earth. And in the second scenario, we lose earth in our pursuit of eternity. It's good for us to sit here for just a second and not run too fast so that we miss what we need to consider. I think what Jesus is trying to dig at both here and in many other places in the New Testament where the second coming is being talked about, I think what he's trying to emphasize is he's coming again and today matters. He's coming again and there's work for you to do. There's work for me to do. He's coming again and our neighbor's need is ours to meet. You get the point. Secondly, in the form of kind of a question, follower or fan? There's a warning in this parable. I wish there wasn't. There's a warning in the whole section of Matthew chapter 24 and 25. I wish there wasn't. Jesus takes the gloves off in these two chapters. I don't like it when he takes the gloves off. But he does so here, and his words sting, and they warrant consideration. Jesus is not teaching this parable to the crowds. To the people who are just kind of, well, who is this guy? This is really important to grasp the kind of sharp edge to Jesus' words. He's teaching this to his disciples. He is, if we want to say it this way, he is judging the Christian community. He's sifting it, we might put it. Think about this. The bridesmaids are all in the wedding. All ten of them are in the wedding. All ten of them 
are waiting for the groom, but five are unwise and unprepared, so they don't bring any extra oil with them. So when the groom arrives, their torches are out, they cannot relight them, and in the end, five bridesmaids are left out of the wedding banquet. We have to just imagine that in a time like ours. If half the bridesmaids who were in our wedding were left out of our wedding because they weren't prepared for it. I mean, this would have been smacking people right between the eyes. So Jesus is putting himself in the center of the story, and he's clearly saying some who claim to follow him do not have him in the center of their story. So they are not, in fact, his follower. The last five years, as you probably know, I think it's actually more than that, probably closer to ten years, but the last five years has exerted steady pressure on the big C church and on the Christian community. And this pressure, as pressure is prone to do, has forced many things to the surface. I've told you this before. I have regular interactions with uh, some of the other pastors in town, and one of the conversations we've had over the last couple of years are the things that have surfaced in us and in our churches and in the Christian community as a result of the pressure of the past couple of years. I was just with these church planters, 40 or so of them, almost to a person when asked, what's it been like? They describe the things that they have seen and watched in themselves and in their people as pressure has weighed down on the church. This pressure has forced many things to the surface, some very ugly things. The church and the Christian community has repeatedly over the last decade been confronted by the reality of who it actually is, the character we have displayed, the way we as a Christian community have responded to things like racism, the way we as a Christian community have responded to things like injustice, the way we as a Christian community have responded and reacted to the political divisiveness in our nation, the way we as a Christian community have responded to COVID and everything that's come with that, the decisions that have been made because of this pandemic. At times, our responses and our reactions to the pressure has been outright embarrassing. I speak not aiming at Oak Hills. I speak aiming at the larger church, the Christian community. Horrific is one of the words one of my pastor friends uh, says it. When thinking about what has been manifested in the Christian community over the last several years. It's kind of strange to me we profess to follow a king who gave his life for other people, and yet we so often live for ourselves, not for him and not for others. There's something off-kilter about that. And I realize this is probably already offended or annoyed, or it eventually will, but I think one way to describe what we have seen is that the ten bridesmaids are really only five. Fifty percent, just using the statistics of the parable, maybe, are genuinely in the game. It's the work of Jesus to sort all this out. But it appears the Christian community is comprised of way less than those who profess to be in the Christian community. Maybe 50% less. Imagine that. 
In verse 12, again, Jesus says to five of the bridesmaids, I don't know you. He's teaching his disciples here. Or at least he's teaching ones who thought they were his disciples. He says to, uh, he's saying this to people who are in the wedding, I don't know you. They weren't living wisely in light of the groom's coming. And again, I don't like this about Jesus. But this is judgment on the Christian community. It is sifting the followers of Jesus from, we might say, the fans of Jesus. And it's sobering. There's no excitement in this. It's a cause for reflection. It makes me think about how am I living? It makes me think about how do we, as a local church, increasingly cultivate authentic and lasting Christ-like character so when the pressure bears down, Christ-like responses routinely and easily flow. It's good for us to think about this, unsettling as it certainly is. Am I arranging the various aspects of my life around King Jesus? Does he have sway over me? Does he have influence on me? Does he shape me in terms of how I think about fill in the blank? Am I learning to surrender more and more of me to him? I think it's good for us now and then to remember that so much of our life with God is this returning to him, coming back to him, maybe for the first time, maybe for the 50 millionth time, confessing our sins, confessing our dependency upon him, coming back to that place of trusting him and following him. Thirdly, as I read this parable, it strikes me there is work for us to do. There's work to be done throughout history, including way back in New Testament times. People have thought the end must be near. They have looked around in their world and they've seen such trouble. And they've assumed Jesus is coming in a week or two. This has happened from the moment Jesus ascended into heaven till this very moment. Christians have thought, it's happening in my lifetime. Just think about all the horrific things that have gone down through history. Christians during those times looked at what was going on and said, surely this must be signs of the end of times. It's going to happen soon. He's returning soon. He's coming back in a week or two, and yet here we are 2,000 years later, and his coming has remained delayed. You know this as well as I do, all these silly games that go down of people going to guess when Jesus is coming, as if somehow God has hidden it all in the Bible. And if we decode it properly, we can figure out the date and the time of his coming. Other people huddle up in a corner. He's coming back. He's coming back. And they sit there huddled in the corner and they wait and they wait and they wait while the world goes to hell around them. But they don't care because they want to get out. Other people demonize the world. You know how this goes. It's us who have a future versus them who don't. It's us who are in Christ versus them who are not. And we get caught into these narratives and these paradigms. I want to say this loud and clear. We have work to do while we live in the delay. And living wisely in light of Jesus' eventual return means 
working for the things he cares about. It means being about his kingdom while we wait for his return. As his followers, then, our vocation is to be about his kingdom, to work for things that will remain when all is said and done. Think of it this way. Jesus is going to return, and he's going to make all things right and all things new, and our vocation right now today is to work to make things new and right in our lives, in our relationships, and in this world in preparation for his coming. Because when he comes, those things we have done in his name to help build this new creation are the things that will last, and they will be the things that matter. So think of something like reconciliation, the hard work of reconciliation, helping the divided find peace in the midst of their differences, helping fractured relationships Heal. Doing this hard work of reconciliation foreshadows the new creation that Jesus is right now building in and through his people. And one day we'll finish. This is why we talk about reconciliation and how reconciliation radiates from the table because the work of reconciliation is work that Jesus is doing in the cosmos and in the creation and in you and me right now, reconciling to God, reconciling to, to each other. So when we participate in this kingdom work, we are participating in something that will last when all is said and done. Think of justice. Justice, you know, right away, some sort of political thing can pop into our mind. Just delete that because it's not what it's about. Justice speaks to something that Jesus will do and bring when he finally comes. He will correct wrongs. He will make wrongs right. That's justice. So now we are to be working to make the wrongs in this world right. That is work we have to do in a million different forms as his people who are foreshadowing his coming, and we are seeking to be part of the work of his kingdom. Think of this idea we, we talk about of mission. Our whole next series is going to be about living missionally right where you are. Living our lives as a witness to Jesus our King, what we call mission. This is work for us to do right now, not work for some to do. Not work for those to do who care about such things. It is work for those of us who are followers of Jesus to be doing in the midst of our lives right now. And that includes telling other people about who this Jesus is. Telling other people why we have hope even in the midst of such chaos. Praying and helping other people have encounters with this living Jesus. There is work for us to do. Last thing I want to mention as I think about this parable of these ten bridesmaids is simply to say it this way. He is coming again, so, if I can borrow from Aaron Rodgers, R-E-L-A-X. Relax. If you don't know why that's a reference to Aaron Rodgers, you don't want to know and you're better off for it, so don't look it up. He's coming again. 
So relax. The parable of the ten bridesmaids is about living wisely in the light of his eventual return, being prepared. And one way we live wisely is to relax about all the things that seem so urgent and out of control. We do what we can. We do our work. We work for the sake of the kingdom. But we bear in mind Jesus is king and he's bringing forth his purposes in this world and one day he's going to return and he's going to finish his work. Now this may seem like religious nonsense that's out of touch with the real world. But as followers of Jesus, this is the real world. This reality of his second coming is what gives shape and meaning to our lives right now. It helps us keep all of this in perspective. St. Francis, so many years ago, put it this way, wear the world like a loose garment which touches us in a few places and there lightly. What does he mean by that? He means face the realities of life however bleak or difficult they may be, in light of the bigger reality of eternity. Or again, say it more simply, R-E-L-A-X. Last Sunday, as you may know, the Green Bay Packers played the Chicago Bears. And for various reasons, one of those reasons is spelled K-E-N-T, for various reasons, I have a lot invested in the Packers continuing their decades-long dominance of the Chicago Bears. I was in Wisconsin last Sunday watching the game with four friends, all of whom are Packer fans, speaking about heaven. I felt like I was in heaven. Every play was edge of the seat for me. Throughout the game, I had this haunting sense a shoe was going to drop and the Packers were going to lose. Well, they ended up winning like they have so many times over the last two and a half decades. But watching the game, unsure of the outcome, created stress in me. Anxiety. I can say it this way. I did not wear the game like a loose garment. Later that night, I was watching highlights of the game on my computer. And some of the highlights were good plays the Packers made, touchdowns, long throws, long runs. And some of the, at least to me, lowlights were good plays the Bears made. Touchdowns, long runs, good plays. But I watched all of the highlights and lowlights in light of an outcome I already knew. And it made all the difference in the world. Knowing how the game ends, knowing my team ultimately prevails, makes it really easy to wear the game like a loose garment. I watch differently when I know the ultimate outcome. Setbacks and pressure points along the way are put into perspective because a bigger story is unfolding and I know the story. You see, we can live differently right now in the chaos, in the pain, in the unfinishedness of our lives, character, in the disappointments, in the troubles, because we know the ultimate outcome. I felt this acutely when my mom was on her deathbed last January. She only had a few hours left. 
And in those moments, the reality of God, the reality of his power, the reality of his promises shaped and redefined my story, my brother's story, my dad's story. And I think though she wasn't actually with us in terms of mentally, her story in that moment. Knowing Jesus as king does not ease the hurt. It puts the hurt in perspective. Because I know the end. I know the future. Someday, one day, the king will return and all will be well. One day the king will return and all will be well. And my mom will be well. So part of our ministry to one another as followers of Jesus is to breathe hope into our hurt. See, this is our work with each other as brothers and sisters in Jesus. We are to, the Bible says, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with the hope we have because Jesus is king and one day he will return and all will be well. It's not all well right now. But one day God will set things right. All things, seen and unseen, in us and in creation. One day God will return and his kingdom will be fully realized. His shalom will permeate every square inch of this universe. One day Jesus will return and he will be recognized by all as the one true king. And he will reign forever and ever. Today it seems so much like sin and evil and shame have the last word. They wreak their havoc day after day by producing anger, division, divorce, complaint, criticism, back pain, knee pain, cancer, COVID, anxiety, depression, loneliness, and a myriad of other troubles. But one day the king will return and all things will be made right and good. All things will be restored to the way they were intended to be. So sin and evil and shame and their many offspring do not, in fact, have the last word. My mom died on January 7th, and this week it will be her birthday on Thursday. And it will be kind of tough to have it without her, her first one. But one day she will rise again, and all will be well. So in whatever manner life is not working for you, job, your physical body, relationship with children, relationship with parents, your marriage, your loneliness, sense of being disconnected, some degree of hurting in whatever way. One day Jesus will return and all will be well. Because of that, we can relax. We can breathe. There is hope. There is a new day and it is coming. And one day all will be well. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus Christ, we center our hope in you today. We center our hope that you are the one who came and showed us who God is, showed us what life could be, and demonstrated ultimate power over the greatest powers of sin and evil and death. Our hope is in you. You are coming again. You are the alpha, the beginning. You are the omega, the end. Our hope is in you. 
Your kingdom is now present and we can live in it now. The reality of your presence shapes everything and we can experience it now. So on this day, lift our eyes off of the troubles of the world, the troubles of our lives, the frailties of our bodies. Lift our eyes and help us set them on the one who brings us hope, the one who is coming again, and help us become people who increasingly learn how to live in light of your second coming with hope, with peace, relaxing, breathing, and wearing all the troubles of this world lightly and loosely. And we pray this in your name. Amen.